We're going to be studying the book of Ezra, starting from now and entering into the summer. So if you opened your Bible just a moment ago to Ezra, don't close it, because I forgot the page number that Dan told you. But Dan, you confirmed a suspicion that for most of us, Ezra is uncharted territory, generally speaking. We, we have a lot of parts of Scripture that we know well, and there are some parts that maybe we don't know very well. And I bet you for a lot of us, this is an area where we just haven't studied a whole lot. And today and for the coming weeks, let's do this together. Let's study it together as God's Word, because indeed it is. So I'm going to enter us into the historical world of Ezra today and into that first chapter um, and, and highlight a couple themes, but we're going to focus on one specific theme today. And, and the way we're going to do this is there's going to be a chart that comes up. Terry, you could pop that up right now. Perfect. Thank you. Um, some of you have already fallen asleep, and some of you are wide awake at this point because there's a chart. Uh, we'll go over the chart quickly. I'm going to bring up a couple passages from Daniel that help us understand the world of Ezra and what we enter into, and then we'll, we'll add one more passage from Exodus, because why not, and then we'll go into Ezra. So let's do this. Here's a, a chart that'll give us an idea of the historical world that we're entering into with Ezra. This is the end of a period of exile uh, for the people, and what's happened is that way back when, uh, pre-930 BC. I gave you some dates just to orient you because sometimes we talk about this, but we haven't connected it to a date in history. These things actually occurred and happened. Israel, after they'd been established in the land, all 12 tribes are there. They've been there for a while in the land God promised them. Um, they asked God for a king. And God, through Samuel, they're asking God for a king. And Samuel says, well, they're rejecting me. And God says, actually, they're rejecting me, but I'm going to give them a king. They're not really going to like it, but I'm going to let them live it out and see what this is like. So they get Saul. Saul really has this interesting task of trying to unify then these 12 tribes uh, together under his kingship. Um, and then David is kind of continuing the same process, a man after God's own heart, when he takes over as the second king of this united monarchy of Israel. And then Solomon, the wisest man that ever lived, made some poor choices in all of his wisdom. And by the time he dies as the third king of the united monarchy, it breaks into two pieces. Ten tribes in the north, two in the south, Israel in the north, Judah in the south. Importantly, Judah is where the temple is in Jerusalem. Those are important things to remember as we go forward. Assyria, the world superpower, eventually overtakes the northern kingdom of Israel uh, in about 722 BC. And then eventually Babylon actually overtakes Assyria. And then Babylon comes and knocks on the door of Judah. And they can't get in the first time, but the second time they overtake. And what happens when both Assyria takes over Israel and, and Babylon takes, or Babylonia takes over Judah is they would exile people or deport them or move them from one place to another. So they'd kill a whole bunch of people, because this is war, and then they'd take the people that they felt were the strongest or would most easily assimilate to their Assyrian or Babylonian culture and move them to a, their land, which would be modern-day Iraq and Iran, that area. And then they could kind of live in their own community for the most part, but they'd try and assimilate them into the culture of Assyria or Babylon. By the time you get to the text of Ezra, you can see in that first letter, Persia has now taken over Babylon. Are you confused yet? There's a lot of big world empires that come into play here. And they're the ones under King Cyrus that say, okay, now you can start going back to the land. But you can see the time frame here. That's part of why we want the, the importance of the, you know, this is hundreds of years 
for some people that have been in exile. For the people of Judah, it's only about 70, but you're on the third generation, basically, by the time they're given the go-ahead to start trickling back. So some of these people are pretty enmeshed in the new land, in the new way. That's important to keep in mind. The themes that we see that come out of Ezra, there are many. Let me just name a few this morning. God's sovereignty, which is what we'll focus on today. The idea of a remnant, that God's always going to have a faithful people within his covenant people, even if there's rank unfaithfulness. That God is faithful to his promises. That God promises return, and when he promises, that's going to happen. That obedience matters. We heard that in the children's sermon well, well stated. Faithfulness matters. That having the vision on the right thing, the things of God matters. That commitment to what God wants matters. That the community is important. And how one person operates affects everybody. And how everybody operates affects one person. That matters. That right worship is important. And a return to right, right worship is always the call in Ezra. And it should be a call to us all the time. And renewal. These are all themes that easily come out of the book of Ezra, which is tied to Nehemiah, but we're not going to go into that this time around. We're going to focus on Ezra. And I want to give you, as we consider the world that we're in and the issue of God's sovereignty, a couple of examples that come from the book of Daniel before we get to the book of Ezra. And, and there are two really fascinating moments. One is uh, from Nebuchadnezzar um, in Daniel 4. You don't need to turn there. The, the key verses will come up on the screen. In Daniel chapter 4, though, um, Nebuchadnezzar, who's the person who has conquered the southern kingdom of Judah and pulled people like Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego out of their homeland and tried to assimilate them. Daniel's a great uh, kind of real-world example of what happened in this process. Daniel has been given the power by God to interpret the king's dreams and visions. And he, can, he knows what they are, God gives him that power, and then he can interpret. Well, Nebuchadnezzar's come to trust Daniel for this by this point in Daniel 4. And Nebuchadnezzar has this dream uh, that, he, that there's a tall tree, and basically the tree is chopped down and knocked over, and, the, and animals kind of run amok over the thing. And it lays there in the field, uh, kind of all of a sudden now having a different use, but basically useless. Uh, for seven years, it's like that. Daniel interprets the dream by the power of God and says, okay, Nebuchadnezzar, that's you. You're the tall tree who reaches all the way to the sky and gets knocked over, and you're going to basically live like an animal for seven years uh, unless you acknowledge the Lord. And Nebuchadnezzar has shown little windows that he would do this, but he hasn't, he's been fairly prideful too in, in his attitude. And so Daniel rounds out the whole uh, word from the Lord with uh, verse 27 of chapter 4, where he says, Therefore, your majesty... Be pleased to accept my advice. Renounce your sins by doing what is right and your wickedness by being kind to the oppressed. It may that be that then your prosperity will continue. That is, the vision doesn't have to become reality if you'll just relent and call on the Lord and acknowledge Him rather than your own pride as sovereign. And do we think Nebuchadnezzar did that? A year later, he forgets. A year later, right next in the text, if you keep reading out, uh, the text, He's standing before his great city of Babylon thinking, I did all of this. And in that instance, he begins acting like a wild animal walking out, starting to eat the grass of the field, nails growing long, hair growing long for seven years until he finally acknowledges the Lord. After that time, uh, in verse 34, it says, At the end of that time, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes toward heaven, and my sanity was restored. Then I praised the Most High. I honored and glorified Him 
who lives forever. That's what he needed to do, and he wouldn't do it, and he suffered the consequences. He was warned. He didn't follow through. The next king of, uh, of Babylon who takes over is Belshazzar, which happens right in the next verse. And if you know the phrase, the writing is on the wall, this is where it comes from, where he's using these sacred goblets, many of which we just read about in Ezra chapter 1, for profane purposes. They're just having revelry. And he says, hey, let's get out the stuff we, that Nebuchadnezzar took from Israel's temple, and let's drink out of that. Kind of like if we'd served up a sandwich on our communion ware, right? It's the same kind of thing. Let's have a party with that stuff. And then this writing comes on the wall. You've been weighed and measured. Your time is up, buddy. And it's going to happen soon. That's what Daniel's brought in to interpret what it means. And uh, Belshazzar, in that moment of, of fear after revelry, in chapter 5 of Daniel, verse 30, it says, That very night, Belshazzar, king of the Babylonians, was slain, and Darius the Mede took over the kingdom at the age of 62. And there you have the Persians taking over the Babylonians, and you enter into the world that we're basically in now. Now the Persians are in charge. So we have a couple of reminders that we can bring up about God's character from this and about our response to God's character. One, disobedience has consequences. Now, we know that probably to some degree by being raised and realizing that, you know, when we do certain things in life, there is a consequence, right? Good things can work out well, and they don't always, but bad things often have consequences. You pay for what you get, however you want to say it, but with God, disobedience has consequences. Nebuchadnezzar was warned. What happened? The consequence came through. God is faithful is the other thing we should be reminded of. That is, God's faithful if he says there's going to be a consequence, and that if you don't turn, the consequence will happen, God will faithfully allow that consequence to occur. Also, though, God, when God promises good things, God is faithful in those promises. Thanks be to God, right? That God is faithful. The way to, to, to kind of put this under one heading is God is just, is how you would simply say it. And you see in what's happening at the end of this empire of the Babylonians, the Judah in exile, you see God's faithfulness both in the consequences and the promise at play. And if we point back to one more passage from the Old Testament to the second commandment, Exodus 20, verses 4 through 6, you can see a real-world way that this played out. Second commandment says, You shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in the heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. How long have the people of Judah been in the land? About the third generation. To the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commands. God is faithful, both to the consequences and the promise. They had suffered the consequences, and now the promise was before them again. Will they take him up? That's the question. So they'd have roughly 70 years of exile by this point. And, and when they're given the go-ahead to return here in Ezra, there's not this flood of people that go back. It's, there's probably been some interchange over the years, and now there's a slower, slow trickling of people coming back. Because let's remember, some of these people had been there for an awfully long time, and they didn't want to go back. 
Some of these people that have only been there for maybe three generations, maybe they still have a memory of the place and they want to go back. People like Zerubbabel who will come into play in a little bit, and Ezra, Nehemiah, they're ready to go. And so if we look at the, the key truth I want to get to today that comes out of this first chapter of Ezra, now that we've kind of grounded ourselves in the history, if we go to Ezra chapter 1, we can already see that God is sovereign over everything that's going on. And that's clearly evidenced in the text. Let me define it before we read Ezra 1.1. A working definition of sovereignty, A.W. Tozer says it well. He says, God's sovereignty is the attribute by which he rules his entire creation. And to be sovereign, God must be all-knowing, all-powerful, and absolutely free. Ezra 1.1 then, it states, In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord spoken by Jeremiah, what did God do? The Lord moved the heart of Cyrus, king of Persia, to make a proclamation throughout his realm. And then he puts it in writing. The Lord has the ability to actually do that. The Lord has the ability to actually enact what he wills to any king, ruler, people, or people group. God has that ability. God's sovereignty is above all rulers, nations, and people groups. And we might simply react to that and say, well, yeah, duh, if God's God, I guess that's how it works, right? But if I may, uh, in, in the cultural moment that we live in, uh, one of the ways that I think that, that we'll see around us in the coming days, just as an observation, now that this next presidential election cycle has begun always far too early, right? People put their hope in the wrong places very quickly and very easily that the right ideology, law, or person will fix all of our problems. And ultimately, we kind of put that as a sovereign without realizing it. It's an important realm, but it's under God. But you watch, and you will see that people start to put more and more and more and more hope in that, especially in our cultural moment when they put less and less faith in institutions, in the church, and in basic civil institutions. They put more and more faith in that and make it a sovereign. But God is sovereign over all principalities and powers and everything around us. One of the outworkings that we pointed out then is that God is free as well to do whatever God wills. So if we wanted to put it a simple way, it's God does what God wills when God wants to do it. It's kind of the theological principle here. There's nothing that can hold God back if God has chosen to do it. I think God has given us as a perpetual object lesson of sort of sovereignty, but fake sovereignty, the cat. I think that is a perpetual example. I, I mean, I think cats are great. But, but if I go home in just a little bit and I greet our dog, our dog is waiting right now for us to come home. And the moment I walk home, you know what she's going to do? She's all over us. Like, I've been waiting for this moment, right? And she's going to, she wants to do right. Whereas when we had a cat, loved the little fur ball, she could have cared less. She acted like she could have cared less. And in fact, if we went away for any length of time, she was annoyed at us when we came back. Like, Where'd you go? Why'd you do that? You know, you got that attitude, right? You go to sit in a chair and the cat's there. Like, go find a chair of your own. And like, the cat has that attitude towards us. It gives you a little attention. It's like, well, I'm done with this now. I don't want to give you any more attention. 
the, the cat acts with sovereignty, right? It's a little fake sovereignty, but the cat acts that way. We may think we're free quite often, but let's just put it simply in simple terms. If I want to plan a picnic with my family and we decide we're going to go out and we're going to pack the bag and we're going to get everybody in the car and we're going to go to the park and have a picnic, I can control a lot in that situation, but you know what I can't control? I can't control if it's going to rain or be sunny or windy. I can't control how many bees are going to be there. Those, I just can't control those kinds of things. But if God wills something, God can control those things. Whatever God wants to do, God will see it to completion because nothing can stand in God's way. That's sovereignty. So we don't have that. God does. God is free to do what God wills. And you can see that in the text, Ezra 1, 2. The Lord, the God of heaven, and this is Cyrus writing this, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has appointed me to build the temple at Jerusalem. Well, Cyrus, of course, could have tried to do these things by force and maybe even could have been marginally successful. God is the one who gave him the authority to do this and the power. God is the one who moves his heart and then says, I've given you now the stuff you need to do it. What God wills is going to happen because nothing can stand in God's way. Not Cyrus, not Nebuchadnezzar, not Belshazzar, not anybody else who could try. When God wills it, it will happen. The next outworking that we would point out, if God is sovereign, God is free, we should also recognize that God is at work right now, even as we sit here. God isn't waiting for us to kind of join the program, and then God says, oh, now we can start. No, God's already at work. There's a constant invitation to us to join. But God's already at work around us. We may not recognize it, but we should know that God's doing what God wills right now. One way that in our modern world that this often works out, and I'm going to make your heart rate go up for some of you, is when we talk about evangelism. This is one way that we sometimes forget that God's already at work. That we'll sometimes talk about that within the context of church, and I'm not a natural evangelist by any means. I have to work at it like anybody else. But we sometimes think, I've got to go and do all the work and not remember that Jesus is the one who said, no, don't go and sow the seed, but the harvest is plentiful, the workers are few. God's already been at work tilling the fields and, and getting things ready, and there are people around us that are ready to hear, and sometimes we forget. God's already doing this. God's already at work. And you can see that in the text here in the days of Ezra, in verse 5. It says, Then the family heads of Judah and Benjamin and the priests and Levites, everyone whose heart God had moved. So God moved the, the heart of Cyrus the king. God moved the heart of both those tribes of Judah and Benjamin and all the Levites and priests. Everyone whose heart God had moved, prepared to go up and build the house of the Lord in Jerusalem. If you go on to the next verse, which isn't on the screen, it says, all their neighbors did it too. All their neighbors started giving too and assisted in the cause. God's already at work in the heart of Cyrus, in the heart of the people, in their neighbors. That's God's sovereignty on display. If God wills it, it's going to happen. And the question that comes, comes out of that always when we see God's sovereignty at work is what's the human response to that sovereignty? It's easy to look at Nebuchadnezzar, Belshazzar. It's easy to look at the Old Testament and see Pharaoh, God hardened his heart, and say, yeah, those are rulers. They thought they were gods. They thought they were all that, and God put them in their place, and we get really excited about that. But of course, if you personalize the issue that we're on, we have to ask the question, does my life reflect God's sovereignty or my own? in the everyday choices I make. 
Is God's sovereignty reflected in how I operate? And maybe a, a typical sort of arm's length way that I see this operating, uh, let's call it outside or next to the church uh, quite often, um, is let's say the attitude of when I've talked to people who are agnostic, typically, not in every case, but typically, when I've had conversations with people who are agnostic, they say they're not sure if God exists or not. This is observational, not judgmental. The observation is that, that the way that they operate in life is that they want to operate in the world where they have good and evil and just and unjust, and they can put themselves in the category of good and just and, and be active and participate in, in good and just things, but at the same time, they can then justify when things don't fit in with that rubric and live how they want when they want. They're their own sovereigns. That's how it plays out. Now, church, we have to make sure that we don't live that way, too, because sometimes we can easily justify things, right? I mean, it's the way we all do it, unfortunately. We're not completely holy yet, so sometimes we justify things we ought not to justify. And one of the ways that we sometimes justify those things, one of the ways that we can, without even realizing, kind of do a little bit of that, live as if God's in control, but yet kind of misinform ourselves on how to do that, is our sources of information, we can confess that we believe the Bible is the word of God, that it's true, that it's inspired by God, and it's, it is not simply a guide or a wise book, but it's authoritative, and it's, it's the rule book by which we are supposed to operate our lives, because that authority comes from God. It's God's word to us, not human's word about God. We can acknowledge all of that, but sometimes we can too easily inform our worldview simply by our Netflix consumption by our media consumption, our social media consumption, our political affiliations, our social groups, and our friends. In fact, those last two, social groups and friends, have a tremendous impact on us without realizing it. And our understanding of how to read the text and be God, live under God's sovereignty rather than our own. We can get good advice just as we can get bad advice in this world. And we have to weigh out that advice very carefully compared to Scripture. The third way um, I think that this plays out as, as an example is, and you see this in the text because the people are giving and they're generous, and one way is that we can, we can claim sovereignty for ourselves a little too easily by confessing that God owns the cattle on a thousand hills but not my cattle. Right? Does God own the cattle on a thousand hills or not is the question. And does my life reflect that? Do I tip God with how I give with money and with time and with energy? Or do I live under God's sovereignty and give to God with the same generosity that God has given to me? Does God own it or not? The people demonstrate that. By the way, for you number nerds out there, the number here does not add up to 5,400. Uh, some of you probably had your calculators out, I'm, I'm sure, or I did it in your head if you're better than I am at math. Um, but one theory on that, just to allay the fear of some of you who are, who are looking at that, is that they're not counting all the big items. Or they're counting the big items, not everything. There's a lot of different theories. Don't get caught up in it, and now you don't have to have your calculators out. But here's, let's talk about this. God is free and unconstrained. That's the point. That's what we're getting at. Sovereignty. God is free and unconstrained. Sometimes we live under the illusion that we are as free and unconstrained as God, and there's a danger in that. The people in Ezra, uh, Ezra's day experienced the consequences of that danger because sin functions like a communicable disease. So once it starts entering into the community, 
if left unchecked, it grows and expands and people sneeze and it's caught by your neighbor. That's what happens with sin. If left unchecked, we start to justify all kinds of things that have no justification. If you want to put it in Jesus' terms, a little yeast leavens the whole dough. It rises fast. The effect of doing the opposite of God's will is evidenced by the kingdoms of Israel and Judah. Rank disobedience, generation upon generation, just added up upon itself, and even the faithful remnant within that could not fix the problem. And God finally says, in order to be able to bless you for a thousand generations, I need at least the third and fourth generation to suffer the consequences so that I can fulfill my promises to you. And that's what happens. And if we tie that back then to what, I don't want to miss this as we go forward through Ezra, if we tie that back to what God does through Jesus Christ, we can recognize some similarities in that the people are living in exile in the days of Ezra, and they're given this opportunity for freedom. And we live in the same kind of thing under the curse of sin right now, divorced from God because of sin, but because of Jesus Christ, we're given freedom to God to be free from the curse of sin. Ezra, in the book of Ezra, they're literally saved from their situation and moved to the new land to grow in God's presence. We are saved through Jesus Christ from the power of evil, sin, death, and the devil to live as God's own in kingdom life starting now. And our obedience matters to God, not to earn our salvation, but as a response to it. And our obedience matters as we live in a foreign land, in a sense. A land filled with the curse of sin still. The people of Israel, Ezra lived in obedience. Some of them, the ones that could return, they lived in obedience. They started coming back to the Lord, even in exile. And then God said, now you can return, you get it. Our response to Jesus Christ and his work is that we live in obedience. We recognize uh, the path of salvation, that it's not, just, uh, it's not just universally given to all, but it's offered to everyone, that all have sinned. We understand that the wages of sin is death. That's, that's the consequence of, of that disobedience that we all have been a participant in. But through Jesus Christ, we're given the gift not just of eternal life, but of abundant life starting now. So we're removed from the wages of sin and we're given that life. And if you confess and believe, as Romans 10 tells us, then that's the entry point. If you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord, if you believe in heart God raised him from the dead, then you will be saved. You're plucked from the power of evil, even though we live in the exiled land. But we become kingdom people at that point, living obediently to Jesus Christ, as we read this morning in John 14. If you love me, you're going to obey what I command. That's the response to God's love through Jesus Christ. And what we're actually being offered at that point through Jesus is death one way or the other. If we come to Jesus Christ to be kingdom people, we're asked to die to self. If we want to live in the land separated from God, we're going to die in the end separated from the sovereign. 
And the question is, when do you want to die? Do you want to die to yourself and be the possession of Jesus Christ now, living abundant life, or do you want to die later, getting all that you can out of this life now and be cut off from God and abundant life and life eternal? Do you want the consequence of the promise is really what we're offered through Jesus? I want to end with this quote from A.W. Tozer, who says basically the same thing, but I think he says it so well. He says, we must all choose whether we will obey the gospel or turn away in unbelief and reject its authority. Our choice is our own, but the consequences of the choice have already been determined by the sovereign will of God. And from this, there is no appeal.